0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12 month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
0: It's such an honor to present this next award.
2: And here are the nominees.
1: And the
2: Oscar goes to.
0: And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the
2: world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture.
1: I'm Richard Lawson. Katie Rich is on vacation this week, but she's making Rebecca and David work. We have David Canfield. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. So obviously, we're going to have to talk about Barbenheimer. We're going to do that first. It's the story of the year in movies, pretty much. Um, And then after that, we're going to look ahead. The lineups for the Toronto Film Festival and the Venice Film Festival have been announced, which also helps us figure out through secret means uh, what will be at Telluride, which is between those two festivals. So I think we should start with the big dual box office narratives of the summer, which, you know, of course, is theater camp and the Miracle Club coming out on the same day. (laughs) Uh, No, of course, Barbenheimer, Boppenheimer, whatever you're calling it, um, has happened. We have witnessed its (laughs) mighty (laughs) awesomeness, (laughs) just as uh, the boys of uh, Los Alamos did. Um, I think it went better than expected, even. I mean, we were thinking it was going to go well, but uh, this feels like pretty watershed for this year or really this decade for sure what do we think the big takeaway is like for you guys like are you feeling really optimistic about what this says about the future of movies
0: i am i mean i I think that they're both really original visions and like while barbie is a very (laughs) ip driven product i do think that the movie built really organically on the strength of a marketing campaign that emphasized that it was distinctive and weird, and driven by a filmmaker who has made a lot of great movies. And I, I'd like to think that was a big reason why it blew up in the way it did, along with the memeing and everything else. It seemed to create a kind of perfect storm. Um, and Oppenheimer, you know, there's really no other way to sell that movie, right?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like the narrative started out about these two films competing against each other. But what really happened is they like supported each other, you know, like people went to see either one and... I I saw some stat that like 6% of people who saw Oppenheimer it's because Barbie was sold out or something and you're just like oh so these films sort of worked together to make this even a bigger success whereas the narrative originally was like you know they're competing and it's like no we we can have two nice things at once.
1: (laughs) Packaging is a dirty word in Hollywood but this is a good kind of packaging like I I, (laughs) I like the idea that maybe two films can kind of help each other in in, in a given weekend Um, yeah I I wrote a piece about it uh, that's on the site now basically there was a lot of uh, there were a lot of people saying, "Oh my God, this is like huge for the future of movies. This is going to save movies," like they said about Top Gun and other things. Uh, and then people pushing back against that, saying, "Well, Barbie's IP and Oppenheimer is a biopic, so it's kind of IP too. So let's not you know count our chickens yet." I think it's somewhere in the middle. I, I think that it's a gr- it's great in the short term. We- we'll see uh, what what the long term effects are. Maybe it's just more toy movies, and Christopher Nolan gets another blank check. But the way like exactly like you said, Rebecca, it went it evolved from Barbie versus Oppenheimer to Barbie and Oppenheimer, I think to me indicates maybe nothing about studio behavior but certainly audience behavior that people are hungry for this kind of event. And yes, we've had singular events like Top Gun and Avatar. But this felt different because it was about going to the movies, not necessarily going to a movie. It was like I want to experience whatever people are talking about this weekend, and I can choose between the two or I don't choose. And to me, if I were in Hollywood making these kind of decisions, I would say, well, obviously the interest is there, even if our boardrooms and our shareholders are more intractable about this stuff.
2: Yeah, I really hope that, you know, we all know that Mattel is sort of has this plan to do a lot more films with their toys. And I really hope they consistently going with interesting filmmakers, because I I don't think we need a bunch of sort of standard fair toy movies. But if they can find, you know, other filmmakers who have something interesting, you know, to say or a way to play with these stories, uh, I'm I'm actually much more optimistic than I was when I first heard that that was the plan moving forward.
0: But just to your point, Richard, about Top Gun Maverick, like there is this mounting evidence that movies that actually have some level of originality and vision behind them are the ones that resonate. I mean, I even think of something like John Wick 4. Like, if you compare the trajectories of movies like those, and now Barbie and Oppenheimer to, like, The Flash or Ant-Man and The Wasp Quantumania, um, it just, it to me, there's a cumulative effect of these are the movies that, when marketed right, when resonating in a certain way, obviously it's never a slam dunk, um, that do take off and that do resonate. And I think there's a definite lesson to be learned there that I find a lot of hope and optimism in.
1: Even if it's just shaking the industry out of the superhero fog, you know, and saying, yes, we're still going to have franchises, we're going to have the fourth John Wick, the second Top Gun, Avatars 345, like, those franchises have a lot more freshness to them than does Marvel 30 movies in at this point, or DC, however many, you know, movies in. And I think that's so instructive to look at the reaction, because it's like, yes, Barbie is IP. Oppenheimer is a biopic about a very famous person. Like, these are not totally wholly original, out of the blue kind of things. And yet they are different from the status quo. And that's enough to move the needle in a huge way, like much bigger than than I had anticipated, um, in just in terms of, of box office numbers. We should also talk, uh, as this is, we're, we're less of a box office podcast and more of a, an awards <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that um, that clearly both of these movies, I think, have now solidified themselves in Oscar narratives. I mean, it might sound yeah. silly to say that about Barbie, but I don't think it looks that silly now at this point. Do you, Do you guys agree?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that in the case of Barbie, it is quite tied to box office, actually. So it does make sense to lead with that because it's a phenomenon. And as we saw with Top Gun just last year, a movie that I don't think was by any means a best picture Oscar contender when it was first screened as much as critics liked it. um, Barbie gets by on the strength of its word of mouth. And I'm not sure if that's going to translate to a best picture nomination But the fact that we can talk about that, we can talk about its adapted screenplay, we can talk about, I think, both Margot Robbie and especially Ryan Gosling in the acting categories, and the craft on that movie is just unbelievable. I mean, when you put all that together, that's an across-the-board contender that could very well emerge with, like, honestly, a leading nominations total, which is pretty crazy.
2: Yeah, I think it really has the narrative all set up for it. I mean, if you kind of have to acknowledge that, you know, comedies don't, have the easiest path uh, to Oscars. But, I mean, this movie has a lot to say. And 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 we have seen that films that sort of have those deeper messages that have been doing really well in the last few years. And, you know, Noah uh, Baumbach, who co-wrote the screenplay with Greta Gerwig, they both have, a ton of nominations for screenplay. I think that's a very serious place it'll contend. Original Song, I'm Just Ken, is just coming for that, I hope. I hope that's what they submit <laughs> for it. Um, because, I hope yeah, expect I'd, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really, I feel like it's a it's a serious contender. And, and I don't know if they went into it. Um, you know, Warner Brothers sort of had that hope. But I think now that we'll be talking about it, for a long time and this is a a weekend that you know will be in everyone's memory for for many many i don't know years to come i feel like it definitely they both are very serious contenders i guess we should talk about oppenheimer who is the more traditional uh awards contender especially being what was more of a biopic than i expected but i think performance wise um killian murphy and robert downey jr both deserve to definitely be in that conversation and lead and supporting
1: yeah, I could see Emily Blunt sneaking in there, too, for supporting. She has one kind of big, bigger scene that that plays really well. Um, well, it's funny talking about Danny Jr., because Oppenheimer is, like, a supporting actor movie. I mean, there's so many men <laughs> in this movie of various levels of renown, but all pretty, pretty known, you know. Uh, maybe more niche, like Benny Safdie, but you have, like, the glorious ongoing return of Josh Hartnett and like, there's just so many people all the way down and yet they could all be beaten by Ryan Gosling. A hundred percent. Like quite easily, I think, or would they run Gosling and lead?
2: No, I think he'll run. No, and I
1: think he'll, yeah, I think he'll be supporting.
2: He's Ken. He's supporting Barbie. Yes. Literally. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, although his performance, I feel like has popped maybe a little bit more than, than, than Barbie's own, but, yeah. um, but no, I mean, the Oppenheimer thing is interesting because I thought that I would walk out of that movie feeling a little more circumspect about its oscar chances maybe that was just summer bias or something like that but like that movie really is aiming for that sort of attention i don't know that nolan went in being like this is my oscar movie but like every frame of it every bit of craft every performance feels engineered to be a big slightly throwback studio oscar epic and i feel like it delivers on that um and i think people will remember it
0: yeah yeah I think he could win Best Director for this very easily. It feels like if the right narrative builds, this could be his year because it is such an achievement. And the level of filmmaking on display, he's never won for subtlety in that department, uh, is very obvious and very complex and very well served to this story. Yeah, I I think that the, the case of this movie is because it is such a traditional traditionally strong Oscar contender as we've seen the academy shift and move around in recent years like i wonder how much how far that will get it because there are there are reasons to think that not that a movie like barbie is more likely to win best picture necessarily but that in an era of preferential ballot in an era of a rapidly changing academy there there are reasons to maybe not overshoot on its chances but to also be confident that while I said that Barbie could be a nominations leader, like this movie, I would say almost definitely will be one of the top nominations getters of the day, just based on the amount that it can go for.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, it's so, it really surprised me that Nolan has only been direct nominated for the directing Oscar once before for Dunkirk. I yeah. had sort of assumed in my mind, it'd been a bunch of times, I mean, he is such an incredible director. Um, he's had a couple screenplay nominations, but um, it, it does feel like, I think you're right, that, that he could really be a front runner in that category, at least.
1: It's weird that he's in some way had a, a more compact, or I guess, no, no, I guess they were sort of on the same timeline, but like him and Spielberg, you know, it went from like, oh, he's the big populist director, but with some serious impulses, and then he has to push through that. And with Dunkirk, his war movie, you know, like Spielberg had his war movies. Um, and then there's a, a second World War II movie, and that that worked for Spielberg, um, for Schindler, obviously, in Saving Private Ryan. And it didn't work for Nolan with Dunkirk, but like, yeah, maybe this is the one that finally has that narrative click into place, and we can stop, you know, or the the Nolan acolytes can stop bellyaching about it. I mean, I don't think he doesn't deserve it for this. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of what's to come. And we're going to get into that with the festival talk. But like, it's a real feat of direction. You know, I think maybe sometimes there are places in Oppenheimer where the screenplay is struggling to catch up to the pace of the direction. But um, it's such a cohesive, enveloping vision. And on the sort of more cynical economic side, he tricked a bunch of people to go see an IMAX movie where it's just people talking in rooms (laughs) and there's one distant explosion, (laughs) you know? And like, well done. Like, you pulled it off. Um, It's also a shame, I I should say, that that Katie's not here today because Barbie is a veritable cornucopia of best song potentials, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like, and you think about an Oscar ceremony next March, if that is indeed when we have an Oscar ceremony, like Lizzo performing that, opening Barbie number, maybe at the top of the show, would like be quite a big moment.
0: Yeah, that's all you need. That's all you need. <laughs>
1: had that exact same thought.
2: I mean, they have to do something where they combine where they do some sort of Barbenheimer combo. I, just, I want to see Killian Murphy dancing to the Lizzo song. Who, who can make that happen for me? <laughs> I believe it was on
1: Who Weekly where they mashed up the Lizzo song from Barbie and I think kind of the signature motif from the uh, the Gorinson score for Oppenheimer and they actually kind of match up like like it's kind <laughs> of a good mashup so um maybe maybe they could do something like that and then we could have a more contemplative moment later in the ceremony of Billie Eilish performing that song from the more poignant ending of the movie of Barbie um yeah I mean they could just basically do the whole Barbie soundtrack during the Oscars and I think people would be very happy
2: Who needs the rest of the fall movies? We figured it out for you. What, is
1: Maestro going to have an original song? I don't think so. That guy's dead. (laughs) Never say never, Richard. Um, It's true. It's true. Actually, you know, honestly, in in these days of holograms and AI and de-aging and whatever, they could probably bring Bernstein back to write a song.
0: terms apply
1: well is that a good point maybe to to get into the the fall festival announcements which um toronto announced on monday venice very early in the morning u.s time on tuesday we were all nervous uh, david you wrote something about the toronto lineup where you know a day before the venice came out and there was you know you were a bit worried maybe in the writing about like whether venice would get big titles because of the strikes I feel like, and I had that worry, I was, you know, I've been ready to cancel the trip if need be. I feel like we're, I'm feeling more sanguine about about Venice. We'll start with there because that's where Maestro is going to be because it's a pretty starry lineup, at least director-wise.
2: I was feeling that same nervousness about the Venice lineup, but when I wrote it up this morning, I realized I was already having severe FOMO that you're going to be there, Richard, which is my general test for if it's going to be a good <laughs> lineup and it feels really really um big to me and it does not feel like it has been hurt by um you know studios pulling their films uh because of the questions about the strike still going on at that time, which it very likely will be. But I mean, we have new films from a ton of directors and a lot that I think we have already been anticipating. It's Sofia Coppola, David Fincher, Ava DuVernay, Bradley Cooper, Michael Mann. I mean, uh, and and then a few films that I actually didn't see um, coming for this year. So uh, I think
0: it looks really great. I also think you have a case here of studios standing by the festival a bit more than maybe we expected. My pessimism was rooted in Challengers leaving that opening day slot and then moving to 2024. It seemed plausible that other movies would follow that path, but you see a movie like Poor Things, the Yorgos Lanthimos film with Emma Stone, which had a very clearly intended rollout of Venice premiere, very closely followed by an early September release. They kept the Venice premiere – Emma Stone, as of now, will not be able to go. Searchlight is owned by Disney, that there's no way that would happen. But then the release date was moved to December. So they did, you know, react to the strike in the way that they had to, but they did maintain that premiere with a filmmaker who's done very well at Venice in the past. I think there are some movies that were probably effective. I don't think they're the top, you know, titles to think about here. like definitely Maestro was near the top of our list of, you know, will this movie show up as was the killer. So Netflix is really, really well represented here. I think also in the TIFF lineup, we saw a lot of Telluride premieres, and we didn't have as many last year. And one interesting dynamic uh, going into September will be a big group of Venice films followed by a big group of Telluride films that don't necessarily overlap as much as they sometimes do.
1: Which is great for our coverage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's uh, kind of ideal. (laughs) You know, I I know that obviously there are a number of of the bigger films on the Venice list, Maestro included, where, yeah, technically Bradley Cooper is also a director, so he could go promote the movie in Venice just as a director, but he's also in it and, like, I, I wrote it, I think. And so, like, I don't think that. He probably will not go. is is my guess. But you have some other things that are still for sale or are independent, you know, um, from distributors who are not in this cabal of of producers and studios uh, involved in the strike. So we might still get some famous faces on the on the carpet, or it's just actors with like beauty deals, you know, fashion deals, and they're not they they are not there yeah. promoting a movie. They're just there promoting themselves essentially, and that's that's above board, right? Yeah, I think it so. is.
0: I also don't know about, like, does Bradley, Bradley Cooper go? I don't think that that's known yet. You know, Greta Gerwig has continued to promote Barbie, but she's, while she is in SAG, she's not an actor in the film. Bradley Cooper is a lead in Maestro, so that's where it's going to get fuzzy.
1: And it's like, could you really do a thing where you're like... Bradley will will sit down for an interview in Venice, but you can only ask him about the direction of the movie. <laughs> you cannot ask him about playing Leonard Bernstein. Like I just don't think that works. And it right. and even and regardless of even if a journalist and a publicist find a way to thread that needle, the optics of it from even one or two layers removed from just people reading that content, like it seems like Bradley Cooper's breaking a strike. You know, and I don't think that they definitely want to stay away from those sort of accusations.
2: It is impressive that they have successfully made a lineup with enough giant director names that maybe we won't be quite as bummed that we're not seeing, you know, Emma Stone and Michael Fassbender and all these actors on the, like, it'll still feel like I think every day we'll see pictures or read interviews that are, feel exciting just because they have so many massive directors coming. But I am, my eyebrows did raise when I realized that Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, and Luke Besson all have films in this lineup. This feels like a very can move of Venice, and uh, I'm not sure what to think about that, other than that, this is how the Europeans do
1: it. Yeah, I've (laughs) already seen some people who were like, you know, can putting the Johnny Depp movie as opening night, and then Venice being like, hold my beer. (laughs) Like
2: Here's (laughs)
1: here's three films, one of which is in competition from, uh, let's say, very controversial directors uh, for various reasons, and you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. Um, I, I I don't know that the Woody Allen, which is his first French-language movie premiering out of competition, that doesn't, or the Polanski movie either, those don't feel like must-sees, but I know that, like, you know, the Luc Besson movie being in competition, like, a lot of people are going to have to cover that because they have to cover all the competition films. And, yeah, I guess that does make for a murky festival, but a controversial festival, which is cynically kind of sometimes what you want.
0: I guess they will bring star power in their own way. Headlines for sure. Headlines.
1: <laughs> headlines are good. I mean, I don't. I don't really want to see like Woody Allen spit on Luke Besson. I, that's not as fun <laughs> as what happened last year. Um, but you know, you never know. Maybe there'll be some sort of bad directors brawl um, at a party on on the Grand Canal. Um, well, let's move over to Toronto because that is another story of directors taking center stage over actors, except in Toronto's case, a lot of those directors are known mostly for being actors. So can you, David, because you wrote the, the the sort of rundown, um, tell us some of the famous actors who are making either directorial debuts or their next films that are, that are premiering at Toronto.
0: Sure. Tony Goldwyn has a film with Rose Byrne and Bobby Cannavale and Robert De Niro. Michael Keaton has made a crime thriller called Knox Goes Away. Kristen Scott Thomas has uh, what sounds like a lovely movie called North Star. You have Chris Pine's directorial debut in, called Pool Man, uh, Anna Kendrick's directorial debut called Women of the Hour. And then I would say on the more established side, uh, Viggo Mortensen and Ethan Hawke are back with new films. And based on the language of, of Hawke's movie Wildcat, uh, which stars his daughter Maya Hawke, uh, that one will also probably go to Telluride. So that, that's your group. I don't know if the best way to put it is that Tiff luck, lucked out, but these are stars who will go to the festival and show up presumably in a pretty big way for their movies. And that's in addition to a pretty robust slate of acquisition titles and and things like that. So, you know, I mean, who knows how these movies will turn out or whether any of them will be able to figure into an awards conversation, certainly possible. You know, these are for the most part, really good actors and uh, people, I think with good taste uh, and Nathan Hawk is certainly someone who's proven um, he, his, his bona fides, bona fides behind the camera, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm still a little unsure of what this TIFF is going to look like because, you know, you do have a lot of movies here um, that, where those premieres are not going to look like what they would have looked like uh, a month or two ago. Um, And that remains the case.
1: Yeah. I mean, this doesn't, uh, the the, the Toronto lineup as is, it feels a few like big, big, you know, Knives Out or or, uh, Fablemans, uh, a few of those short of a, of a, you know, huge Toronto, but there's hopefully enough star power and enough movies directed by famous actors. And those movies are not, part of Struck Studios, so people can actually go promote them. Like, it feels like there will be enough to talk about. And I don't know, I see some awards things lurking. I mean, we've talked previously on the pod about um, um, Nyad, like Annette Bening getting another run at Oscar, which I think is pretty exciting. Um, you have Kate Winslet in a biopic of a war photographer um, called Lee. So I don't know, I I, I see some, some, some bright sort of, perhaps the glints of Awards in there, Rebecca. What jumped out to you in the Toronto lineup?
2: Well, I I think it's impressive they got a couple world premieres, even though they're the last in the the lineup of festival the festival gamut. So they have Dumb Money, um, which is the Craig Gillespie GameStop movie, and then they have Next Goal Wins, which is Taika Waititi's film, um, which I feel like both could be awards contenders and and could play very well at that festival. They feel like the audience will really like those types of movies. So I'm interested to see how they do, um, you know. And then they also have this movie Pain Hustlers with Emily Blunt and Chris Evans. So I'm, I'm curious about that one, though we haven't heard much about it. Um, but yeah, I think it's really smart that they have so many sales titles that do have the possibility of more promotion uh, by actors at the festival, though we still don't know that for sure. Um, but that does seem like sort of a lucky break <laughs> for the festival, <laughs>
0: Craig uh, Gillespie's last movie, uh, awardsy movie he did direct Cruella, was I, Tanya, And that was obviously a huge success out of Toronto. It sold. It got Allison Janney an Oscar and Mark Robbie nominations. So that, you know, that dumb money is one where he's a director who, um, I'm not necessarily the audience for his movies, but he does tend to resonate in a particular way with, with the industry. Uh, so I did, I did definitely catch that one. Um, and to your point about Nyad Richard, You know, there are a lot of Telluride premieres here that very well may be going into Toronto with a lot of buzz. Um, Presumed Telluride premieres, I should say. Telluride, of course, does not announce until uh, their Labor Day weekend festival. But that, Rustin, The Holdovers, Alexander Payne's film uh, with Paul Giamatti and Divine Joy Randolph, Uh, these are all, you know, described in such a way that we can assume they're going to Telluride. They also feel like Telluride movies Um, There's also Apple's Fingernails, which is a movie we haven't heard much about, but it's got a really phenomenal cast, Jesse Buckley, Riz Ahmed, Jeremy Allen White, uh, and that seems to be going on a pretty robust awards route as well. So there's a lot to be excited about, and there's a lot, as always with Toronto, to keep your eye out for what movies are going to be going into Canada with a certain level of excitement already built in from the previous premiere.
1: Yeah. Do you know if Fingernails is? Does that have distribution or is that a sales title? It's Apple. Oh, it's Apple. Sorry, you said that. So they're, they are being struck, Apple, correct? So we won't get like hottie Jeremy Allen White photos on King Street in Toronto.
0: Hottie Jeremy Allen White and
1: hottie Rizamed. Oh, right. Yes, right. Yes, yes, yes. So um, <laughs> that's reason enough for people to go back to the table <laughs> <laughs> and really figure this thing out. Yeah, I, I think also, I, I I this is just top of mind for me, because I, I happened to finally catch it this week. But I finally saw, Anatom- I mean, finally, it's not out for months. But I got to see Anatomy of a Fall, the Palm d'Or winner from Cannes that um, Rebecca saw a while ago. And I was really blown away by it. And I believe that's going to be a Telluride, we're thinking, and Toronto. And it's very good. And Sandra Hewler is amazing. And I mean, this sounds horrible to say, but like, to the movie's benefit, there's a lot of it in English. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that like she is one that we should all keep our eyes on. She didn't win the best actress at Cannes, presumably because the whole movie won Palm d'Or and they wanted to spread the wealth. But I, I just I think it's an incredible performance, and um, there is usually one or two quote unquote foreign slots in the main acting categories, and I would I would hope that she would be recognized for that. <laughs>
2: The run for revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am friendly boys. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that,
0: we support that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Cheer being in this beautiful pink room.
2: Alright, Asha, can you hear us?
1: I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me?
2: We can. We can.
1: Alright, here we are. <laughs>
2: On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um AWOK and a winter okay. I'm Cho Minardi and I'm Chloe Mel, And we're the hosts of the run through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us, it's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever
1: you get your podcasts. So in general, obviously, we can trust that the performers and writers involved in these festival films—Venice, Toronto, Telluride—are um, going to stick strong to the union rules. I know there has there has been talk about uh, certain special dispensation made for people based on, you know, what movie is in what distributor or whatever. But um, so we'll see how that plays out. But I'm curious if you, either of you, have any thoughts on how the studios are going to be treated. I mean, like is seeing a Netflix logo before a movie going to elicit booze at this festival like it did one year at Cannes? Or, you know, is there going to be all that circumspection about streaming movies at this festival at a time when streamers are kind of turned to as one of the chief, you know, architects of the downfall of the industry? Like, from you're both based in LA. Like, what do you think that mood will be as people try to launch campaigns for these movies that depend on a lot of consistent adoration? And maybe people are feeling reluctant to do that these days.
2: What a tough question, Richard. I feel like you may be the expert on this because I feel like if there's any of that sort of drama at the festivals, it would be at Venice because yeah. now that now that you've reminded me about the Don't Worry Darling drama of last year, it just feels like that is, you know, like Cannes, that is the festival where drama is sort of part of the package. You know, Telluride is so laid back and I, a lot of those studio execs do attend and I think can just kind of watch the movies. There aren't press conferences or those those types of um, red carpets. So where David and I are, we'll be a little more relaxed. Um, but I do feel like it'll be, how can we predict the mood, you know, in a month and a half from now, when we imagine that these people have been striking for that long at that point and how... Much fear there might be, you know. By that, by the time the festivals are here, I just don't know. But I, it is a good question because what will be the topics of those press conferences in Toronto, you know, and Venice when this is the biggest thing affecting the industry in years? So I don't know. It, it could be a tough one.
0: Um, the the discrepancy between the fact that these are the big studios who are being struck against and what the actual movies are. You know, these really personal, often small, independent visions will, I think, make it a challenge for the mood to get too um, negative, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, you're really talking about, like, if you go back to a movie like NIAD, you're talking about what may be a really wonderful NIAID narrative for Annette Benning. And that's going to be the story of that movie, not necessarily that it's a Netflix movie so i i'm I'm just not sure that we're going to hear that much sentiment around it unless there is a concerted effort uh, on the part of actors and writers to make sure that is known and and so as we talk about this question of who can promote what and um who you know who should do what i i think that that might be the more pressing question is who should do what because to your point richard Maybe Bradley Cooper can technically go to Venice and participate in a press conference and sit for interviews as a director. But the bigger question is, what role does he play in that as a member of that guild that is on strike? And I think that that's a really individual situation. Um, And depending on how a bunch of individuals react to it, especially, you know, those Toronto filmmakers we're talking about who are actors, you might have a collective kind of mood that does inform something that's a little bit more tense and maybe appropriately tense.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe it'll be an opportunity for these conversations to be had in these settings that are so focused on the work, you know, and like, hopefully directors will speak up about this stuff and, and, you know, um, I don't know. I'd be, I'd be interested to see if, uh, if maybe some of those executives you mentioned, Rebecca, don't make it to Telluride this year Mm -hmm. uh, out of uh, some sort of, I don't know. These people don't experience shame. What am I talking about? <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, lastly, before we close out, I just I'm curious if um, there are some movies we're not seeing on these lists. We don't see Blitz. We don't see Napoleon. There, we don't see Dune Two, which you know, obviously the the first one premiered at Venice and and played again in Toronto. Do we read anything out of that, or is it just these are big studio or big movies? And maybe Blitz isn't done yet, but like they don't need this particular runway.
2: I think word on the street is blitz is not we're not getting blitz this year okay. but I yep. I don't know if that's confirmed but I think we were all I that was my Oscar pick for a, you know best picture winner in that episode we do so I guess I'm out of the running already <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> So we were all, we were we were all sort of hoping that one was going to make it but um I you know I think I feel like from the calls we've been making David and I and Katie it there's a lot of conversations going on about strategy with backup plans on backup plans if the strike is going till October, November, December, who knows. But it feels like does Dune 2 need a festival debut this year after the success of the first one? I don't know. So I think a lot of it is just strategic um, choices on, depending on the studio's decisions this year, because I think they all look at what does a festival give us and does this film need it this time around?
0: It, It does feel like with the larger scale movies that there has been a concerted choice to not make these festivals. I thought of Ridley Scott's Napoleon, as well as um, The Color Purple, uh, movies that are dated for November and December, uh, that don't need this necessarily. And that now, really, I would say, have very little reason to do a festival premiere. Um, but I am looking at a movie like Saltburn. That was pretty heavily rumored to, I think, hit Venice. Uh, it's not going to Venice or Toronto. It certainly still could go to Telluride. We have no, re- no way of knowing uh, at this point. But though there are still movies like that, where it's like, has a decision been, a bigger decision been made, or is the rollout going to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more gradual? And that's a very wait and see situation.
1: And you would have thought that they would have wanted to trot out Emerald Fennell so hot off of playing poor, maligned, pregnant Midge in Barbie, <laughs> although she's a writer on Saltburn. So maybe, you know, so yeah, that would be a conflict.
2: She's a SAG actor. Is she yeah. That's another one of those tricky situations. I don't think she's in Saltburn, but it's still tricky for her.
1: Yeah, I mean I would say that I'm confident that a festival can still feel robust and exciting without a lot of the the on-camera talent. But I say that as someone who will be there watching the movies and writing about them in a critical capacity. I, I just I wonder what the attention will be outside of that. You know, if people are really going to be eager to see coverage and, you know, red carpet photos of David Fincher, you know, I, I, I don't know. That feels maybe like a, a steep climb. But uh, we will have all that coverage uh, in the coming weeks. We're very excited about that. Um, in the meantime, you can read David's write up of the Toronto lineup, Rebecca's write up of the Venice lineup, my kind of pseudo Madeline Bel- 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 analysis of Barbenheimer from this past weekend. <laughs> All that and more on VF.com. Well, that does it for this week's episode. As ever, you can find us at VF Awards Insider on Twitter. You can email us at littlegoldmen at VF.com if you have any questions about Barbenheimer or fall festivals. You can find me, once again, for the time being on Twitter, at Rylaws. Uh, Rebecca?
2: Rebecca and Rebecca M. Ford.
1: And David. David Canfield, 97. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for what we've been saying about producer Brett ever since he started goes to Rebecca Ford. He's Ken. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival.